Long or strong, get gone. Most of us know that advice. About when to evacuate when faced with the risk of a tsunami after an earthquake. But would we actually do it? Surveys suggest around one-third of New Zealanders would either not evacuate or not evacuate fast enough. GNS Principal Scientist Graham Leonard is back to talk about tsunami risk in New Zealand, what's being done to plan and prepare for one. Uh, Kia ora, Graham. Kia ora, Kim. All right. What's a tsunami? A tsunami is any disturbance of a water body that affects the whole water column. So it might be in the ocean or it might be in a lake. As long as something's disturbed the whole water column... uh, the, so it's uh, just simple displacement? It's displacement, yeah. It's not like a wind wave, though, where you're just disturbing the top of the water body. So it might be a landslide or an earthquake. Yeah. You deform, you deform what's under the water, you move the water, right. and then the water has to level itself back out. Eureka! That- it's Archimedes, right? Yes, indeed. Thank you. In case you thought I was going insane. <laughs> and it's pilloried. I know it's pilloried, not pillarized. Another reason to quit live radio. So... Please don't. You've got, it's not a wave of water. It's a slowly rising level of water. Well, it's fast rising and fast arriving, but it's a surge that just keeps coming. So tsunami are generated uh, mostly by earthquakes, as I mentioned, maybe landslides and volcanoes as well. Mm. But they're most commonly and the biggest that we have to deal with come from earthquakes. And those earthquakes move big areas of the seabed and they create a big bulge of water and then that water has to level itself out. So that bulge is long, and the tsunami wave will keep coming for 20 or 30 minutes. So you've got, when it arrives at the coast, a 20 or 30-minute surge of water running kilometres inland, then running back out and repeating over and over for many hours. Why does it go out and then come back in? Well, if you think about any wave, you know, you, you drop something into a glass of water, you'll see waves that are going up and down. And so with an earthquake or a landslide, you might push up one area, but you also quite easily draw down other areas. And the first bit that arrives at the coast can be that drawdown, that the, the, the downward wave. So you end up sucking water out from the coast, and that's kind of dangerous too, because people who don't know better go and collect fish yeah, and get yeah. caught even worse by the tsunami. Right. So where are we most vulnerable in New Zealand to a tsunami? So all coasts in New Zealand are vulnerable to tsunami. They can arrive anywhere, but the east coasts of the both islands, especially the North Island, can receive the biggest tsunami. Because? Because of the plate boundary. So we've talked about this before. There's a plate boundary running right through New Zealand, driving the, the, uh, the motu out of the ocean. That's why we're above the water in the first place. And the plates in the North Island, the Pacific plate is pushing down under the North Island. It's subducting. And as it does that at tens of millimetres per year, it's kind of binding up and bending the crust, bending the ground down over hundreds to a thousand or more years. And at a certain point, it just can't hold it. And it bounces back over a period of minutes. That's the earthquake. And that bounce back moves the seabed by metres off, you know, at the worst case, tens of metres, and the water too. When did New Zealand last have a destructive tsunami? So the last, well, we've had destructive tsunami in the last few years at local marina. Uh, In the Kaikoura earthquake, we saw tsunami that reached and damaged houses in Banks Peninsula. Uh, A more widespread destructive tsunami uh, in 1960 came from South America, and that that caused damage around the country. We've had 
three or four instances over the last 150 years where the tsunami have arrived at more than 10 metres of run-up height. And so in those cases, we've seen quite a bit of damage in areas like, like Gisborne or the south coast of Wellington, but those aren't the biggest tsunami we can see. We can see the large plate boundary uh, earthquakes and tsunami like in Indonesia and uh, the Indian Ocean in 2004, mm. and like in Japan in 2011. And that's really. We've got really a picture on our webpage of the damage from the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami in Japan 2011. I mean, we've seen nothing like that in New Zealand. We haven't seen it before, but we will see that kind of thing in the future. It's unlikely in our lifetimes, but we need to be prepared for it. it that's the one that keeps me awake at night across volcanoes, tsunami, landslide, flooding. This is the one where if we don't evacuate, we could have many tens of thousands of fatalities. Japan had... So that photo is taken by my old PhD student, um, Stuart Fraser, and we went over there in 2011 to understand how building damage occurred, how people evacuated, how people got saved inside buildings in Japan, interviewing emergency managers to understand the warning, understand the evacuation. We asked them at the end of these interviews, what are the most important things to bring back to New Zealand? And they, they said three things consistently. Evacuate on the earthquake by itself. Don't wait for an official warning. Every minute counts. They said... Walk, don't drive your car, because uh, quickly you go to uh, gridlock and traffic jams and people w widely died in cars. And finally, they have a philosophy called tsunami tendenko, which is everyone for themselves. And that sounds, um, sounds kind of dark, but actually what they're saying is be, make sure everyone's prepared ahead of time. Don't be tempted to go into tsunami zones to rescue loved ones, to rescue your children, you, because you're putting yourself at risk. Rather, ahead of time, make sure you trust the arrangements at their school or at their rest home or wherever so you know they're going to be safe on the day and you don't put yourself at risk. Because in Japan, we saw parents going in to rescue kids, and the kids were fine, but the parents died. Uh, so those three things, how prepared are we for each one of them? Well, so as you said at the beginning, we've been conducting surveys uh, over recent years repeatedly, and there's, there's a consistent um, kind of poor scorecard on whether people are evacuating or evacuating fast enough. About a third of people are consistently not evacuating or waiting too long, doing other things, gathering things before they evacuate. Also, I mean, just thinking about that previous interview with Julia Ebner, people don't trust authority now. Well, that is a, that is a challenge, and the key thing here this, is this needs to be community-led. We have official monitoring and detection systems that have improved a lot in the last 15 years, but they're to detect tsunami from farther away where you don't feel the ground shaking. Up towards Tonga, from South America, we have a great network of deep ocean dart boys, they're detection boys that can tell us if a tsunami is traveling. We have good seismometer networks around the Pacific, and we have emergency mobile alerts. You would have seen those come in on your phone around COVID-19. Those were actually paid for and set up mainly for tsunami. But I worry that people will now feel a huge earthquake, you know, one that lasts minutes, but wait for their phone, and we don't want that to happen. The fastest warning for the biggest tsunami is that long or strong earthquake, longer than a minute or hard to stand up. In Japan, there's a strong correlation between people who evacuated on that big earthquake and their survival rate. Is there anything that we can do in terms of building that would make us safer? I mean... We're yes. not supposed to be close to the coast anyway on account of climate change. Yeah, well, and that's, that's a discussion for another day. But warnings are definitely 
uh, a last resort. We're we're accepting lots of damage, and we're hoping that most people will get out of the way if we're warning. When we choose to live in risky places, and there are a lot of risks at the coast, but if we're living there now, some places are are too far from high ground to get there quickly. And so, yes, we probably in half a dozen key places around the country do need vertical evacuation buildings. You'll see a photo on the the um, the website for this interview. A of, ramp, an yes. evacuation ramp. Yeah, so that's a building at Oregon State University built for two uses. It's their marine lab, but the roof can can house hundreds of people with a ramp that people can get up there quickly on. That's a vertical evacuation building. We now have some of the engineering guidance we need for those buildings, but we're not building them. And we need to get moving on that in places, uh, for example, in South Napier, where it's a long way to high ground. And that's tricky. They're expensive to build. You're building new tall buildings. It's a community decision and it's a cost decision. But that, along with evacuating immediately, is the other piece of the puzzle that New Zealand's missing. So the ramp is a wide thing. It's for walking, not driving, because it's got barricades around it, so you can't take your car up. So you run up this wide, wide ramp and get on the ceiling, the roof of the building. The building is obviously being built. One hopes to withstand big surges of water. Yeah, that's right. And that's actually, the second important thing. Right? It is an important thing. But one of the key things we and other engineers found in Japan is uh, reinforced concrete buildings with good foundations and steel buildings with good foundations like they have in the Japan, like we have in New Zealand. They actually perform really quite well. Mm. After the earthquake, if they're tall enough to be above the water, many thousands, tens of thousands of people were saved in buildings like that, even if they weren't designed for tsunami in Japan. And that's another avenue, especially in somewhere like Wellington here. Which buildings can we safely have people stay in after an earthquake so that My they're safe from a tsunami? Right, I reckon. Yeah, up in Brooklyn like me, we're, we're up nice and high. Yeah. Um, but if you were at the coast in a timber-framed house, you wouldn't want to stay in it, even if it was two or three stories, because they're light, they're easily damaged, and they can float away. So I'm talking about reinforced concrete and steel buildings uh, as really effective ways to evacuate, not, not, not personal homes. I mean, the, the issue is how much money are we prepared to spend for something that might not happen for 50 years or one year? That, and that's a tricky societal question. But I'll, I'll come back to what I said earlier. This is the one that really keeps me up. I've been to Bendache and seen places where 50,000 people have died, a mass grave of 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. We know uh, the exposure here is many tens of thousands of people when this happens. Can we, you know, can we imagine the massive tragedy in Japan happening here. We want we don't want people not evacuating and we don't want them having no high place to get to. Yeah, it's very unlikely but the consequences just through the roof. So there's a tsunami hikoi coming up. Yes. Next month what's what's going to happen? So that's that's a great initiative. I strongly feel that regularly walking through evacuation routes at schools and communities is the main way to learn what to do. So Tsunami Hikoi is on the day of shakeout. Shakeout's our national drill to know what to do if you feel a big earthquake, drop, cover, hold. And then if you're at the coast or in a tsunami evacuation zone, if it's long or it's strong, you need to get gone immediately. And I want to see everybody around the country evacuating through their routes to learn what to do immediately in Tsunami Hikoi every year. In Japan, they studied... Uh, people who drilled regularly versus not, 
and their behavior in the 2011 tsunami, there's a strong correlation around immediate evacuation and survival and, and running drills. The Japanese are telling us to do it. Thank you, Graham. Uh, and details of that tsunami hikoi are on our webpage. It's October the 19th. Get ready to shake out, they say. Graham Leonard, GNS scientist. Thank you. Thank you.